Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, we are live. We just, uh, everyone gets to hear us while we try to get this show going. We bring you diversity. In a world of hate, we bring you love. In a world of fear, we inspire you to live. And now, laughing, loving, and alive with your hosts, Rain Thomas, Elmer J. Howard, and Dr. Kevin. Hello, hello. I am Olympus. Okay. Hey. Oh, here we go. I am Benjamin Franklin. Hi, I'm the invisible man. Where'd you go? Where is he? (laughs) Oh, I hit my head. Oh, Speaking of hitting your head, how's your shoulder? Uh, it's been better. <laughs> mm. wow. The PT is not helping. Well, no, the PT was helping. In fact, uh, you know, Monday I go to PT, and uh, he's like, "You've gotten you. You're like the." way ahead of where anybody normally is at this point. He's like, I'm adding exercises I don't usually add for a couple of months. You're doing great. Your shoulders started to drop, you know. He's like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. It's fabulous. He said that to me on Monday and Tuesday morning, I screwed it up. What'd you do? Well, we were running late um, and Jeff helps me with my my exercises so to make sure that I'm lined up and stuff like this. We're running late. We're rushing the exercises. We're trying to do stuff. I'm I'm frustrated. So I was not in the right headspace, and I just did something wrong, and I went, oh, not good. So I go and see him on Thursday. On Thursday, he goes, yep, you had a little setback. You're still doing really well, but you're you got your shoulders very angry with you. And I thought, hmm, I'm doing my PT and I'm angry and now my shoulder's angry. Hmm. I wonder if there's any relationship there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so, but I just had a great weekend away. Jeff and I did a three day weekend. His sister's in from France. We went to a lake house for the weekend. And I asked my physical therapist and he said, if it's if you're doing it below shoulder length, it should be shoulder height. It should be fine. Um, you know, obviously, if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. But you should, you know, just kind of stay aware. And so this weekend, I was swimming, I was hiking, I was mountain, I was I was mountain climbing. Um, you know, like we went kayaking like three times. We went canoeing once. I was so physically active. And most of the time, it, it, it wasn't bothering me. It felt pretty good. Um, but then at one point, I, like, jumped up on a dock that I finished. So two things happened. I jumped up on the dock, and I laid there. I was like, it's starting to spasm. Maybe 45 minutes of non-stopping swimming was a little too much after the, you know, like, five-mile hike. Uh, where I did the second thing, which was, slip and had to grab something with it and just go oh ouch or fall you know like fall down like a lot of rocky trail so i was like okay okay well we'll see we'll see we'll see so i don't know i mean i'm icing it i'm back home to a sick cat i picked up we picked up the cats and one of the cats is sick so i've been dealing with that henceforth me getting on the show just barely in time you know Bad shoulders, sick cat, whatever. But a fabulous weekend. Fabulous. Good. All those physical things. And I've decided that I think next year for the summer, I don't think we'll do it this year, but I think next year I'm definitely going to get Jeff and I kayaks. And I talked to his dad about he should get one too and go with us. So, um, So we can go kayaking next summer because I really love it. So 
That's my shoulder. That's my sad story. <laughs> Feel bad for oh. me. So how do you guys? Uh, oh. Yeah, Elmer, how are you, Mr. 800 Awards? Uh, well, uh, busy for doing well. Um, I do want to announce that uh, just past Monday we were on Outcast Maine. Um, me, Brett, and Melissa, my cinematographer and writer. And this coming Monday we're going to be on Outcast Maine again. It's on WMPG at WMPG.org. Uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, this time, on uh, this coming Monday, they're doing um, the cast uh, and myself. Uh, and so that's uh, available on their website, too, for streaming if you miss it. Um, so definitely people should check that out. It was a good interview. Uh, yeah, and things keep rolling in. We're up to 42 awards now for Kings and Queens. Excellent. I'm jealous, but excellent. <laughs> We're very I happy. love that. We're very happy for your success, Almer. When are you buying something for us? Because we're happy for you. Isn't that, what, isn't that how it works, Ray? Yes, that's exactly how it works. <laughs> and, yeah, well, <laughs> like you aren't getting anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's like, I, I, I know I sent Brent and Melissa uh, beers because they, they fell in love with a beer here in Maine and I sent it to them and they were getting it on my birthday and I was like, hey, this isn't right. How is it I'm sending you guys presents on my birthday? <laughs> Um, I want to know how you're sending anybody anything. I didn't even get a, a shirt from the first movie, and that's the reason we're on this podcast. What but, in the, well, yeah, the how did devil? You not, we ran out of shirts. <laughs> you weren't here. How could how could I, you run out of a shirt when actually, I'm in the movie? <laughs> actually, you were. Well, we we handed them out at the premiere. weren't you there? Yes, and I didn't get anything because you said to me, oh, we ran out of shirts. I'm like, how would that be possible? I am here in the movie. I didn't order the shirts. That was that was Stan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, strike seven. <laughs> I'll keep so what's going. the name of your we'll next see. movie? 101 Ways in Which I Passed the Buck by Alma J. Howard. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, instant viral. <laughs> Come on in. So, Rain, how has your last few weeks been? You got some good news. I've been watching. Share, share, share. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I scored a couple of commercials, but I also scored a principal role in what is a sitcom. Uh, I started shooting last month, actually. And um, it's I can't say the name. I can't give any details, obviously, until they decide, you know, what they're going to call it, when they're going to show it, where it's going to be. But I can say that I play opposite of someone who is very well known. So that should be fun. And the two commercials, I can't talk about one, but the other one I can kind of talk about. I think they haven't released it yet. So um, maybe I'll just wait till the next show because they haven't released it. <laughs> I shot it already, but they haven't released it. So, I mean, Elmer, you know how that goes. I don't want to be the one to spill it. They might have something big because everything now is, you know, video like this and you're shooting everything. And in my mind, it's already out there, but it might not be out there. So I'll play it safe and wait till the next show. So I, you did very good not mentioning the name of the big star that you are opposite of in the sitcom. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. I'm, I signed a piece of paper and I'm not trying to look at an, you know, and, and, an and attorney. And, 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 and I'm happy you signed that piece of paper because I would not want that cat to get out of the bag. Get it? it yeah, okay, it's Dr. Kevin, right? That, that's it right there. <laughs> Let them keep wondering. I won't even tell people probably when it comes out, but, oh, I guess there's a third piece, too. So I was in a film. I went to L.A. They chose me to play this wonderful role of Clara. And actually, the film is called Clara. And they finally, because COVID hit, like, a couple weeks afterwards, like, boom. And um, they are going to release it here in the next few weeks. So when that comes out, you might want to check out Clara. You know, when you say Clara, I have to tell you what I think of because you you had mentioned that before. Um, And you can never mention it too often because you can mention it 5,000 more times and you're still not going to catch up as many times as Alma talks about these awards. But um, Oh, that too. So, you know, so. uh, (laughs) But I have to tell you, every time you say that, all I can think of is Aunt Clara from Bewitched. 
And I can just see you polishing doorknobs and wearing some animal. Uh, don't have... don't you worry about my knobs. Uh, <laughs> you don't like having your knobs polished? <laughs> I didn't say that. I said don't you worry about those. <laughs> you missed that part. <laughs> I miss nothing. Um, <laughs> Tony's probably like, yeah, I think I'm gonna hang up now. <laughs> Tony, Tony, stick it out, stick it out. You're trying to prove how tough you are. <laughs> a good indication. Um, so, so tell me, you you know who I mean, right? You you used to watch Bewitched. You never watched Bewitched? I've seen it like twice. It's the the magic lady, right? The witch, she and Dan or whatever no, the guy. Darren. Darren. Yeah. See, I'm close. And Sam. Sam and and ah. Uh, well, when you come to hang out in my hot tub and uh, let me feed you all of my cherry tomatoes, which are just falling off the vine and ripening uh, these days, and yum, and give you my, my 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 kitties, give you all sorts of like tongue massages because they just are aggressively affectionate. Oh, good! I love it. I will have to find an episode because I own all the episodes of Bewitched. And show you one with Aunt Clara in it, so you can get the reference. Okay. It's really funny because she's okay, really, I will. really ditzy, and yeah. she accidentally brings Ben Benjamin Franklin back from the past with a, a spell. <laughs> and I said I was Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> You're Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> so I assumed, oh, she really is making a joke about playing Clara. No, no, <laughs> no. No, but I have to tell you, the movie is not a funny movie. It's an intense movie. The uh, the the young lady who wrote it, she's phenomenal. She's intense too, and um, it's about miscarriages with slaves back in the South in the late 1800s, and the effect it has on both men and women. But of course, nobody talks about that because there were so many other issues, you know, with around that. You know, situation. So it, it's intense. She did an amazing job. I am honored to, to play Clara. And I actually don't have any speaking uh, parts, but you don't need to in this movie. So Oh, you mean you didn't have to memorize a monologue? No, I didn't have to. No, I didn't have to memorize a five hour monologue just to be told <laughs> that I can't do it. That's right. Elmer 42. You did, you did it. You did it. I just had to cut it out of the movie. He just, he just, he just begs to have you, 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 <laughs> like go at him for this like heinous crime he committed. <laughs> memorize this thing, perform it perfectly, if you don't mind me saying, and then cut it out of the film. Well, she keeps forgetting I did use it in my director's reel. I did, and it was fabulous. But Doctor Kevin, you know the funny part? He's like, when I get there to do it, he goes. Do you want to run through it a couple of times? Maybe go. And it's like, no, because I was off book like the next once I got the script, I'm usually off book the next day. That's my craft. And to me, I take that very seriously. So he's like, oh, so you have it memorized. I'm like, yeah. And nobody else came that well prepared. Yeah, I don't work like that. I respect time and money. So Rain, here is what I want you to remember as your standard comeback when he brings this up in the future. Elmer. If you had left mine in, you would have won more than 42 awards in the movie I was in. The reason you didn't win any awards is you cut out one of the premier best parts of it, you dunderhead, and now you brag about the fact that you made that mistake and all of those awards got lost, which you would have won. Do you want to bring it up again? I love that. That's exactly she, my goal. She's the one that actually brought it up before you got on. She was... She was telling tony about that history oh well yeah, yeah. <laughs> tony knows me very well <laughs> so speaking of tony so you know how you see these these old comic book ads of the skinny little kid who the bully is kicking the sand on and he brushes it off and then he goes and he finds this magazine and hope and he lifts these weights <laughs> and he does all of these things and then he becomes this he-Man that gets the girl and, you know, and lives happily ever after. So I want you to keep in that, that in mind as we introduce this next upcoming guest. Uh, I don't know if he got the girl. I don't know if he lived happily ever after. 
But shit, he's got some muscles. <laughs> Tony Pearson. Hello. America. There oh, yeah. he is. <laughs> Mr. America. Show us your cleavage. All the, all the Americans have to show cleavage. That's not cleavage. <laughs> I was going to say. If you're a bodybuilder, you got cleavage that, you know, could make Dolly weak. Go ahead. <laughs> a little bit of chess. Not a little bit. Come on, Tony. Don't be modest. <laughs> come on. Come on. Tony's a super, like, linear, you know, type A kind of guy. And, you know, him being my trainer some years ago, I used to really just. I would just go in after Tony every time we got together. It was entertaining. <laughs> so was yeah. this show. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Tony, how many awards did you win for surviving training rain? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> it's going to start again. So no. She was training heavy. She was a powerhouse, man. Did you just call her fat? She was serious. About she's it. heavy. <laughs> she was serious. Yeah, if you're gonna do it, do it. I mean, I was honored that everybody knew who Tony Pearson was. I came up to my husband. I said, "There's this guy at the gym that's gonna train me. His name is Tony Pearson." He's like, "Tony Pearson, like the bodybuilder Tony Pearson." I said, "I don't know." He's like, Can... "Then I remembered like Arnold Schwarzenegger and." A story and that movie, uh, pumping, that iron. movie? pumping iron, like that kind of stuff. And I said, Yeah, I think that's him. And he goes, No, that can't be right because how he's at the gold gym. I said, I promise you that's him. And we gold started gym, gold yeah. gym in Las Vegas, Las yeah. Vegas, not the Venice Gold Gym. No, no, there's there, that's not my speed, right. <laughs> <laughs> So, Dr. Kevin, do you want to start raking him over the coal? Well, do you see how they treat me, Tony? <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I did a little, I did the little fun thing because for a lot of people, you know, uh, you know, that is the old joke, you know, the skinny kid, and then he goes and he lifts weight and he becomes a he-man. And Jack Lalane, you know, was the man of the the hour when the hour was in crinoline and poodle skirts. Um, but people have different reasons. And I'm very interested of what started your journey to become, uh, you know, a world-class Mr. America weightlifter. Like what was the impetus? What made you decide that this journey was worth it? Well, it started in high school. I joined the wrestling team and I weighed about 132 pounds and you know, I was but I was pretty muscular for a kid, and I joined the wrestling team my sophomore year. And and one of my matches, I injured my knee really bad, so the doctor oper operated on it. And then he said, find a gym to rehab your knee. This is 1974. There's no physical therapy. So I went to the, my gym at high school in the weight room, and I would go there every day, start you know, pumping iron a little bit, and I started noticing my body changing really fast. And then I, I was pretty strong as a young kid, too, so I, I started lifting weights every day, challenging the other uh, other members at the gym. And I started to grow, and then my wrestling coach said, hey, you want to go to your real gym? So he took me to this gym in St. Louis, where I went to high school. And the owner of the gym, the very first, first day, he came over and he said, I'm going to train you. So I guess he saw some potential or something. I don't know what he saw. <laughs> He was a crazy guy. He was a wild man. But uh, from that day forward, I was a bodybuilder. So, and then about nine months later, after I put on like 25 pounds of muscle, training with this guy every day, six days a week, I decided I was going to go to California, go to Gold's Gym in Venice, California, because that's where all the great ones, Arnold Schwarzenegger and all the Lou Ferrigno, that's where they all train. And... Um, that's what I said. I'm going to California. I packed my little suitcase and moved out west. I had one little suitcase. I made it to Muscle Beach. And once you're there, you get hooked. <laughs> that sounds romantic. 
I don't know about that. <laughs> it's, it's very challenging, put it that way. I was going to say, yeah, romantic. I, I, nothing personal, Tony, but I never got anything romantic about that story so far. <laughs> it, was, it was a little suitcase. Maybe I'm just daydreaming because I'm like, was it a little suitcase or was it a little suitcase because you were so muscular? You know, it was a little suitcase. I was so poor. Maybe that's. You know, <laughs> I get that. There was not much to put in that suitcase. I get it. A lot of hope. I had a hope yeah. in the case. That's good. Rain, don't be a size queen. Let him move on. <laughs> oh my God. So well, back to my back to my knobs, right? Yeah. So, so I, you know, I mean, there are some. Uh, things that people pursue that take a lot of funding, a lot of money. I mean, you can't be a race car driver without getting a race car or, you know, having access to one, or there are some things that there's a lot to, you know, there's a lot of periphery expenses to doing that. But you, as you said, you had a little suitcase, you went to California first, first, and you ended up on Muscle Beach. How does one make money or like, do you get sponsors? Do you get funding or do you just have cougars to pick up the check because you're young and muscular? <laughs> <laughs> it's a legitimate question. I mean, you know, you move it's legitimate. <laughs> you moved to California, you're poor. I mean, and you're lifting weights and last, I don't know who pays you to lift weights. I mean, you know. Well, when you go to California and you're in complete unknown, you weigh about 160 pounds. So I was pretty much homeless for a while. <laughs> and I worked out at the weight pit and the guy let me train for free. And I was living on tuna fish, coffee and water, you know, chips or donuts. I mean, you know, genetically, I was guest gifted because I still managed to gain muscle size, even though training in the hot heat in the sun in the weight pit. So uh, it took a long time before you mentioned money, though. What what money? <laughs> there was nothing. Uh, you, when you're an unknown, I'm, I'm around the best bodybuilders in the world. So who am I? Who is this kid from St. Louis at 19 years old? He's a nobody. And most people told me I would never be, you know, become a champion. And then one day on Muscle Beach, well, first I, I met Arnold Schwarzenegger. He discovered me on Muscle Beach. So that was the beginning. That was the turning point. But still, I, had, I didn't have any money. You have to do the work. You know, you have to win some titles and prove yourself to the big boys that you want to be a part of the group. It was like a little group at the time. Because bodybuilding was so new and no one could understand it. I mean, that's one reason for leaving St. Louis. Because if you want to be a bodybuilder, you had to go to California. You had to go to Venice. Because we were, in 1976, we were strange. Why would you lift weights? I would hear it all the time. Why would you lift weights? Uh, why don't you get a real job, especially my family? Yeah. My family would tell me to get a real job. So it took a while to convince these guys that, you know, I want to be a champion. I'm, I'm serious about it. So Arnold Schwarzenegger had just retired. He sent me out to see Joe Weider, who owned, uh, who owned Bodybuilding, to do an article for his magazine. This young kid from St. Louis, you know, he's going to be a great champion someday, he said. But... The welcoming was very sad. Uh, he, Joe Weider looked at me and he goes, Arnold sent you here? He was, he was very disappointed, I guess. And uh, I said, yeah. And then a few months later, I won Mr. Venice Beach as my first time winning something. And then I, I made a prediction that said, in two years, I will be Mr. America. And so all my friends around, they're all laughing. <laughs> There's no way. It's impossible. You're dreaming. And within two years, I became Mr. America. So, that now, is, so after, after that point, then the pros started looking at me in a different light, I think. I was able to train with them. They started teaching me a little bit about more, more about training, about nutrition. And, and then I realized this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I mean, especially after Arnold discovered me. I go, he believes in me, then I must believe in myself, too. So... How do you, so how, at what point did it actually become a business and could you, could you just not be doing it? I mean, I'm assuming that at some point you probably had to get some kind of job until you figured out how to monetize it. 
Yeah, we all became bouncers. So I was at Gold's Gym in Santa Monica, and we all needed a job. And most of the guys had a little green jacket, a little white shirt, and, and a tie. And we worked all the uh, special events. We worked the um, at the Forum in Inglewood. We did the People Choice Awards. We did the Grammys. So we were security for all those places. I mean, I met a lot of stars. I'm standing next to Robert Conrad, and I famous hero and I'm like oh my god but I can't say anything I'm security he's standing next to me <laughs> you know what I mean I tell us at the time the ball head guy and like oh my god tell us about us so all of them John Wayne come to the front door and I said I said hello to him he goes howdy and he kept walking <laughs> there's a lot of stories and we're I worked the concert at the forum with Stevie Wonder playing the piano up there I'm standing right next to the stage that's my position for the night Chekka Khan comes off stage he stumbles off stage I had to grab her and put it back on stage and but we work in security that's how i paid the bill you work you work all night and then you kind of train at the gym all day and you made just enough to survive another day and there's still no money you're not going to make any money until you turn i won this to america still there's no money involved so eventually a couple years later i turned pro i won mr world in new york from there you get a free pass to go to london to compete for mr universe which i came in second so now, you know, it's starting to happen. Uh, and then the following year, I went back and won it. And from there, you start doing, like, seminars and guest, guest appearances. But you got to have the titles. I had a few titles under my belt. And then promoters start calling me because I was known for being in great shape and a great performer. So they, you want a show? Bring in Tony Pearson. He's, he knows how to perform. So that's how it all started. But still, you were just making enough to, to get by. It wasn't about money. It was about, you know, being a winner and, and being a champion and loving the sport, love having a passion for it. We wasn't thinking about money. I mean, today it's all about money. Then it was about you get a trophy and a handshake. You're happy. You have the title. So, so it, it, was, it was a different mindset in the 70s and early 80s. But, I mean, bodybuilding was brand new. You have to realize it was brand new. I was on Good Morning America in 1978. Uh, was it was in 78 after I won Miss America. And the questioning the girl was asking, you could see just how new it was. He goes, why would they put baby oil on their body, she asked. Ken Sprakes, the owner, he was the owner of Ghost Gym. And he says to give a better reflection of the muscles when he flex. It's like a piece of art on the wall. There's always a light on it. Same thing with the body as we transition from pose to pose. So bodybuilding is an art form. It's not just building muscle. People, oh, you lift weights. There's a science behind it. <laughs> You know, the way I look on stage was completely designed and organized by my, by myself on how I wanted to look. I created the body that I wanted to present to the world. And that takes a lot of time, a lot of years, a lot of homework. And I had some of the best coaches in the world, thank God. So we get looked at as a weightlifter. We're not weightlifters. I call myself an artist. I try to create this unique look. You know, I'm not a very big guy, and small frame, small hips, small wrists, but on stage, I give the illusion of being much, much, much bigger. So that's the art form. And your presentation and your posing and the oil and the music, all these things come together, the symmetry, the balance of the muscles, the separation, the detail, the muscularity, all these things creates the world champion bodybuilder. Problem is, once you get to the top, Everybody wants you out, so it gets even hit 10 times harder. You have to work 10. After 20 years, I survived it. But you have to work that hard to stay at the top. So you said something earlier about, you know, it wasn't about the money. It was about the trophy. It was about the win. It was about um, passion. this passion. you got to be passionate about it. This is, a, this is a job you can't be lazy to do. This required twice a day, every day, six days a week for 20 years. Imagine that, training twice a day. And you mentally have to be up for it. It's a mind game. Some guys, they turn to drugs, alcohol, injuries, depression, all these things because they can't keep up. Their heart and their minds can't keep up. So it's only, only the strong survive this one. You know, there are one of the, the reasons I was pushing for like the time frame of when you started to when you got to a point 
where you um, could do what you love and get paid enough to live by doing. Not so much become a millionaire or things like this is, I always feel like out there watching this right now or watching this in one of the replays, there's going to be there's going to be somebody that either is or has a kid or a child that is or knows somebody who is making this. I want to be. I I love this. I want to be a bodybuilder. I want to be this. I want to do this. And I feel as though that those of us who have achieved goals, which looking at us now might look like it was easy or it wasn't a big deal or you know stuff like this i find a lot of times that putting out like what is realistic if if you go in and you say i'm gonna have to do this probably five to seven years before i'm gonna get to a place where you know maybe i can do this then you can have a mindset of a pacing and that was more my curiosity the pacing if somebody watching this right now said i'm working out twice a day six days a week and I th i'm thinking about heading to venice beach when would they start to th when would they when would it not be for them anymore would their boat have passed it by after two years after three years after five years you know what i'm asking yeah the time has completely changed we didn't have social media we had a magazine or the library for information and uh these kids get endorsements now from ig posting every day or or commercials you know they get a lot of things from online social media helping them to survive in my day from 1976 until 1981 i didn't make any money from bodybuilding nothing there was no exhibitions no seminars i didn't have the titles yet so once you got the titles, and then I was making enough to pay the bills around 1983 on. And that lasts until 1994. Never got rich, just barely escaped through to pay the bills. Like I said, it wasn't about the money. It was about enjoying what you're doing. I got to travel the world for free, basically. Guest pose, been, been some very interesting places I've seen. So, and I was, and I was loving what I was doing. And, uh, and, and it's healthy. You know, that, that was my passion. To kids today, they it's very easy. You know, you get a YouTube channel and, and you get enough followers and you get a paycheck every month. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was no social media. You pray to God that you're in the magazine next month. Mm -hmm. It came out every six weeks and I would run to the stand to see Muscle Fitness, Muscle Power Builder and see if I was in the magazine. Because if you're not in the magazine, you're nobody. There's no other way getting publicity. So times completely change. A young kid today who starts out, I know guys who's never been on a stage and they make tons of money just from uh, YouTube or IG. So mm -hmm. they get a paycheck every month. And to me, that's easy. But they don't understand, you know, that money's not going to continue to come because they're going to get older and they never competed. And all the young people coming up is going to take their place. Mm -hmm. We had to do the, we had to really do the work. I mean, being a ghost gym one run the, run the best pros in the world, if I didn't prove myself to them, they're going to throw me out of the gym. This kid's nobody. There's the door. You can take it. And I understood it. I got it. They tell you one time to do an exercise, and this is how it's done. They don't repeat it. So it was, it was, it was tough. Only the strong survive. And my, my training back in St. Louis kind of prepared me for that. He said, you're going to go to California. It's going to be rough. You better be ready for it. And I was ready, you know, the way I was raised, we'll talk about that later, but I was conditioned to be ready for it. And I was enjoying it. Not that I was, it was, it was a challenge twice a day. I was happy to do it. I was loving it. It was like, I was in heaven. I've got the gym, that was my life. Just so happened I made a career out of it. Yep. I've had people say to me before, you know, they'll go, well, what do you do for work? And it's like, I don't do work, I do joy. I get up every day and I get paid to be me. It doesn't get any better than that. Right. And, and I think that that's what everyone should be striving for is we all have a value within us. And it is, there's nothing wrong with getting that value monetized so we can be in our joy and our passion. And I think if we had more people that were living in their joy and the passion, we would have less of the crap going on 
and less of the competitive stuff going on that is that is, so, that is not healthy competitiveness. It's destructive competitiveness. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's interesting, too, because, Tony, you talk about, you know, having to do the work. And, of course, this generation and the last couple are in the entitlement generation because, you know, me, I had to do the work. When you're singing, I mean, if you look at anybody, you look at James Brown, you know, changing in a broom closet or a mop closet and or you're all changing on a bus. I mean, you had to do the work and you had to be talented and you had to figure out how to captivate live audiences. Whereas now no one knows if you're talented or not because you can do everything behind the scene, put it on YouTube, put it on Instagram. And all of a sudden you're like this multimillionaire with no talent. And it's kind of sad because I don't think that teaches anyone about passion and and hard work and grit and doing things that you love. Everything's a passing fancy. So um, with with that being said, I actually read your book. I'm sure you knew. It broke my heart. It mended it. It broke it again. It mended it because I know you personally. And I, I knew you came from a, a tough place and a rough start, but I didn't know it was anywhere like that because I can actually understand that. Um, from my own personal background. But the fact that you made it to anywhere based on your very meager beginnings, that in itself, I'm going to send you a trophy. I'm, and, and I'm going to make it myself and mail it to you. I don't know what I'm going to call it. I think I'm going to call it the driven statue or something. Yeah, but it's impressive. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's, um, do you have the book to show us? I do. Yeah. It's the Cobb's driven and that's, that's me on the cover when I was three years old. And what I see is a frightened little kid's face. I was tortured for 12 years. So that's the place I came from. So when I got to George Turner's gym and got to California, training was fun. Yes, training is hard work, but I was enjoying it compared to what I've gone through. And I said that many a times. Where I've been, this is nothing. So, you know, and you know, what, what's happening today, the kids don't get in it. They don't understand discipline. Yeah. They don't, it's no, you know, you got to have a discipline because life throws you a curveball once in a while. And as they get older, they're going to figure that out. YouTube and uh, IG is not going to save you. You have to deal with real issues in life. And you don't have the backbone because you never experienced, you know, hardship before. So, I, you know, that's the thing kids really need to think about. They can't communicate well. They text you. Mm -hmm. You have to talk to people. You have to understand, read bodily. 70% of what you say is with your body, of the tone in your voice. They can't communicate, so I'll text you. So it's just a lot of things. Like I said, times have changed so much. I never can imagine it's going to be at this level today. And then back to bodybuilding, how the guys are so much bigger than we were. And, you know, Arnold was the biggest guy on the planet. When he discovered me that day, it was like, it was like, I was looking up at this guy. Oh, my God, it's huge. You know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm 19 years old. I'm, you know, maybe 60 pounds, 160 pounds soaking wet. And he was a monster. But now they're much, much, much bigger than he is. <laughs> Everything just changed. Just, I wish we had social media back in the day. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, yeah, you would have been dangerous. <laughs> yeah, you know, my, I was the Michael Jackson of bodybuilding. I would have been posting every day and fans all over the world, you know. You would have been so much doing so much posting, you wouldn't have had time to work out. out. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. Between sets of team, I got I to gotta post this. <laughs> I, you know, that, um, I don't want to cut you off, but I have two people asking how can they get your book, Tony? And they're sending a message. Okay, uh, it's online at amazon.com and just type okay. in Tony Pearson Driven. And okay. it, it also have the audio book is out, it's audible.com. You can listen oh, to it okay. Yeah, it just came okay. out. So um, you can hear me recite my childhood. <laughs> Good, yes, Amazing. I'm gonna get that too. The most painful thing I've ever done is to actually sit there and recite it. So, I mean, because you start, you're living and all the emotions come back and you thought you got rid of them. You thought bodybuilding saved me. It didn't save you, it's still there. People don't realize the pain and trauma, it stays in your skin and your body and your stomach and it's, it's in your mind. It's locked away, but it comes back really quick. 
Mm -hmm. Well, it, it may have also been the most healing thing you ever did. Yes, it was very healing. And I remember the days driving home, I have to record or write the sad parts and I would cry. And then the other days I'm coming home, oh my God, I won the trophy and I won Mr. Universe and this is going to be a fun day, you know, to write. <laughs> so yeah, it just it depends on what I was writing about that day. It was, yeah, it's so, it's so strange. So the situation is now we just did uh, the documentary on my life. And uh, we went to Memphis, Tennessee, where I was born and raised and lived in the shack. So when you go back to those places where you actually was living, and it's so incredibly painful. I, I went back to Memphis, that little shack. It was back in the woods. It was tucked away, and I'm standing there, like, just, you know, a few months ago, a few weeks ago. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm here. And you could feel the energy. You could feel it. And then I went to back, went to St. Louis and all what I went through there. So everything that I did and the documentary should be out um, at the beginning of October, I think. I think they're going to do a really good job on, you know, it's like a survival story. It's an inspirational story because mm -hmm. I can have one kid out there to turn their life around and find something they enjoy doing and uh, be passionate about it. You know, you don't have to be a bodybuilder. You don't have to be a weightlifter. You want to dance, music, you know, whatever it is, but it's something you got to love to do, and that should be your outlet. And it's healing, too. Bodybuilding did a lot for me mentally and physically as well. Well, in, in some ways, I would suspect that the stronger you got, the more it may have made you made that inner child of yours that was so tortured and traumatized feels safer because he was able to better feel like he could protect himself. Yes, wow. working out had a lot to do with that. And it was a, it was a secret though. I, for 20 years, I kept the top secret. You know, you read the articles. One guy told me, Jimmy says, do not believe your own press. So in other words, leave your ego at the door. Mm -hmm. So I would read these articles about me, and some of it was really fantastic. Oh, wow, Tony, you're the <laughs> I'm going da, da 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 And then I close the book, and I go, I know where I came from. Yeah. You know, I'm just a little country boy down in Tennessee. So I know. And then, then I got the terrible articles where he's the worst Mr. America ever. He's this and he's that. He's the champion. He's skinny. He don't have any cats. They go on and on and on. And, I, and you have, when you're 21 years old, you hear that you read this about yourself. It's really painful really goes deep to the heart but the way i was raised i said i will show them i always come back and go i'll be back i will show you and even today i'm i want to show last year i'm still trying to show them <laughs> that i belong so you know it's a it's a fight to the end it's a fight to the end you got your critics you got people who like you and people who don't like you so it's yeah uh, it's, it's tough uh, like I said, if this one, this book could help just one child, one person, one one adult to face their own issues from childhood, because it's all tucked away. And I said for 20 years, I never told anyone about this. I had my girlfriends. I was engaged. Blah, blah, blah. They didn't know my story. They never knew my real story. And then a few years ago, 2018 or something, I just said, I just start writing. And I just kept writing. I didn't know how to write a book. How to write a book? What do you mean write a book? <laughs> I'm on the stage performing and write a book. But I figured it out. I figured out how to write the book and how to express the deepest feelings, deepest emotions. I didn't sugarcoat it. I just told it straightforward. Oftentimes, when we get past the trauma, and we actually have survived and we get far enough along and we can then take the trauma and make meaning out of it. You made meaning out of your trauma by being disciplined, by being hardworking, by being relentless in your goal, by discipline. And so your trauma helped you be better. Then, as you reached out to other people and you inspired or you motivated or you gave hope, you then started giving it a different level of meaning because then you are helping other people 
by the fact not only did you survive your trauma, but you learned how to thrive in spite of it, to spite it, and because of it. Mm -hmm. And now you're taking that to even another level. And this is what happens for people that oftentimes have very abusive childhoods. And this is what I tell my clients. When I get you to the place where you can see you would never have touched all those people, made all of those differences, shined all of those lights, giving all of those pieces of hope, if you hadn't had the darkness of that tunnel at the beginning, some part of you then says, it's okay. And you feel it like a weight that drops. It starts to drop away because you go, I survived it. It is no longer me. It's not my future. It was my past. But my future is brighter because of it. And so there. So all of these people you're helping now helps make everything that happened to you not be wasted mm. because nobody benefited. First of all, you benefited from it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And now you're bringing in the world to benefit. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you are out there and you are feeling like you need a little inspiration or hope in your life, you're sitting there and think, I have it so bad in my life, I don't know how I'll ever get on. I think you might want to read this man's book. You might go, oh, maybe I didn't have it quite so bad. Maybe there are some things I could be doing. Maybe I could find my passion. Maybe I could move forward. Or maybe I could just never be a whiny bitch. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> Or just drink, you know. or drink myself to death and forget all about it. Yeah. Um, Tony, I have a question for you because when I was reading your book, and I think this happens, and Dr. Kevin, you can, you know, have your thoughts on this, but, um, you know, you see all of those things that people put out and they're like, oh, you're so good, or, you know, it was a great show, and, you know, she's really funny and she's always engaging, and, you know, we love having her come to town. But at the end of the night, I sometimes felt and feel like I'm a fake because I know the real story and I never shared it with anyone. But all of these people, because you know, interviews and people, your parents must be really you. And I'm like, oh, those people are donors. And I move right past the question. And they laugh because they think I'm being funny, but I have to figure out a way because it keeps bringing up the pain, but they don't even know that that's there. Did you right. have that when you open up those articles talking about how great you are and the whole nine? Does it sometimes make you feel like, you know what, I'm, I'm faking this? Yeah, I was faking it for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, yeah. My, girl, my girlfriends didn't even know. Yeah. I mean, no one knew. And the owner of Gold's Gym recently said a text to me. He was such a nice, quiet young man. I had no idea mm -hmm. what he had gone through. He read the book page to page. You know, he goes, I just had no idea. We covered it so well. And then I said to myself, I'm living a lie. I'm living right. a lie. Right. I'm lying living a lie. To, I was lying to everybody. Yeah. And then the, well, you kind of get involved in bodybuilding and fans around the world and he's sending all these, sending these nice things and you kind of get caught up in it too, a little bit. And you, you know, I, I mean, I never forgot him from Tennessee, but. You kind of you're trying to get rid of it. You try to push it aside. It's not there anymore. It never happened. So many times in my mind, I tried to erase it. Mm -hmm. How can I erase my beginning? How can I have the mom and dad that I wanted? How could I? Right. Why could I? You know, just be normal. And you know, I had no personality when I got to California. I was I was in trauma. I was just shocked. I, I couldn't hold a conversation with anyone. I always had my head down. I just saw a video of me from Winnie, Mr. Venice Beach. Some guy videotaped from Australia. I was watching me. I posed. I had my head down. I walked off the stage. I had my head down. And when he had me in the trophy, I raised up for a second. I was walking around my head down the whole time. I was just like numb. I had no idea who I was. I didn't have a personality. When you're tortured and you're afraid you're going to die every day or any minute, you keep your mouth. You have no expression. Mm -hmm. You're just empty. And I wanted to America. I didn't smile. I just raised my hand. <laughs> I should have been happy. Inside, I was happy. So it's, yeah, I, I was living a lie the whole time. And I just felt bad that I can't continue to live this lie. And that's when I start writing. So once the book was done, we're going to put it on Amazon. 
And my friend, she had a finger on the button. She goes, you want me to push it? And I go, I don't know. I go, push it. <laughs> because now you're exposed. You're completely exposed now. Mm-hmm. But I feel free from it. Now I'm okay. I, mean, I, can laugh, I can laugh about the story, even though it's real, but now mm-hmm. it's just a story. Good, because you've inspired me to do the same thing, and I'll work on that at some point. Yes. You know, and that's we got to make a movie. You give, uh, <clears throat> and I'll play me, <laughs> and I'll say what I damn well please. <laughs> you write your own script. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Elmer, Elmer, don't worry about it. Rain and Tony and I are going to make a movie and we'll send you a free ticket to the opening. <laughs> and I want a t-shirt. <laughs> um, but this is one of the important things. And it's one of the, that I sometimes talk about how we all have closets of some kind that we have to come out of. Things that we are, are made to believe we need to be ashamed of or we're afraid of. We need, you're a typical, you know, I've, I've been in practice for 31 years now as a spiritual coach, counseling catalyst. And I've worked with a lot of people that have gone through cult abuse and trauma and all of these things. And over and over again, it's the, the fear that is so inlaid within the cellular memory of the repercussion of looking proud or smiling or, or my emotions are used against me or these things. And that it does go away. You can heal through it and move past it. It is possible um, to do it. But one of the things that is absolutely necessary in that process is you have to come out of every closet you got stuck in in that process. And when you go through that breaking out of the closet and breaking out of the closet and breaking out of the closet, and you roll model to people that you can survive it you can survive it you did survive it and then you can thrive then you can win awards you can be on tv commercials you can direct a movie where they won i don't know what is it two awards (laughs) Uh, that you know whatever it is that you give permission to those people who are frozen in their fear of the closet that there is nothing waiting for them outside. People will be horrified. Nobody will ever want to be my friend. No one will ever want to date me. Nobody will ever want to love me. Nobody, I am such a horrible person because this happened to me. And to the child, the child will always fault themselves first. What did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve it? I mean, it takes lots of layers and steps to really understand the true uh, release the release that that comes in when to go and say I am I was victimized but I'm no longer a victim right and that word shame that's mm-hmm. what I was holding for 20 years shame yeah if I told the truth I would never get a girlfriend you know I would never, no one would speak to me. So I took the blame on myself as a yeah. child. Yeah. I get it. I get it. I said I was damaged goods, but I had, for me, my parents were those people on the outside that everybody, you know, they always were, my dad was super charismatic and my mom was really nice. And, you know, I could never, I mean, they both lived to like a thousand. So I've been carrying that shame until they both died a couple of years ago. And I still don't say a lot because they still have friends and their friends, you know, kids who are like, you were so fortunate. Your dad was so funny. He was so great. Your mom was so nice. And those are not the people that they think they are. So I've been carrying that. And I'm like, you know, after reading your book, I was like, you know what? I'm going to change some things around and I'm going to purge that. That's That's got to go. It's got to go. And I, I'm, you know, between you and my husband, I mean, you know, Brian, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, we've been married like almost 25 years and it, there's still stuff like when I bring it up and he's like, you never told me that it's so deep that I didn't even know it was still rolling around in there somewhere. So once I read your book, I read your book like in, in one night and then I read it again, 
Yeah, I read it one night. I stayed up all night and I read it and I finished it. And wow. I was just like, oh my God. So thank you, Tony. Thank you, yes. Yeah, um, yeah it's, um, I don't know. <laughs> Something. Things we, things we hide. <laughs> yeah. But it is freeing. You know, I felt free to tell it, to, to write it, to get it on paper. I was writing it so fast. I go, this is not me. How <laughs> do just coming to me? Like, you know, every morning, I would just get up and start writing and just writing and just uh, where's it coming from? It just the memory just kept coming back, you know. It's it's amazing how quickly I got this on paper. Like, oh my God. I think it's something I just wanted to get out of my system. Yeah. You know? I was feeling it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just I'm really gonna know tired, it. Really tired and, and just um the bodybuilding world didn't know anything about this, so because I felt ashamed. You know, I, just, I get it. Yeah, that's what happens is until we reach a place of declaring our independence, of speaking our truth, they still win. They still have the power. Right. And out there is a little Rain, a little Tony, a little Elmer, a little Dr. Kevin, who is going through horrendous things and they need role models. They and need this, hope. I know this, I know this, I feel this. I see kids from a distance and I go, that kid's having trouble. You can just see it, it's a body language. They're looking at the ground, with a blank stare on their face. And he's, he's living in hell, he's living in hell. And it makes such a difference whether it's some little girl that watches Clara or sees you and says, oh, I want to be like her. And then she finds out you have this podcast and you listen to this podcast and you talk about surviving and you talk about telling the truth and moving forward. Some little boy or some little girl, you know, I don't care, that wants to lift weights and they look and they resonate to you for any number of reasons because they're from memphis tennessee because they're a person of color because they want to be a bodybuilder because there's something and and it speaks to them and then they're going to look up to you the question is what are they going to see well the first thing is they got to believe in themselves you got to believe that you can get out of this you know, because people turn to drugs and all gains and everything else as an escape. But you really got to believe in yourself. I had so many naysayers along the way, tons lining up, but I still believed. And I don't know where that came from. I think because I was so conditioned to be a fighter, to live. I fought every day to stay alive. Yep. And that could be it. It, it could be that a lot of times Whatever it was, and someday you may remember, but I would bet, as we used to say in the old Maine woods I grew up in, I would bet you dollars to donuts that you found somebody who inspired you, some fighter, something that said, I can hook it. Because oftentimes when we're getting our ego and our value and our worth destroyed, by the people who are supposed to be building us up or tearing us down, the people who are supposed to teaching us how to live are oppressing us and, and, and suffocating us, that we find somebody. It might be an imaginary character in a book. It might be somebody on a TV show. It might be somebody in a magazine. But we see something and we believe in them before we believe in ourselves. And can I butt in? That was Muhammad Ali. There you go. See, I knew there'd be somebody. I was 13 years old, walking down the street in St. Louis, you know, coming from the park, and I saw this limousine pull up in front of a high school. It had a full police escort. And I went, who is that? It must be the president of the United States. So I ran as fast as I could. I get to the limo, they open the back door, and Muhammad Ali steps out. I'm 13 years old. I'm looking at the champ. He was the current champ at the time. So I'm looking up at this guy. He had a blue suit on, his muscles bulging out of his shoulders. And he just masked like a superhero. 
And that was the day that changed my mind, my mindset, and my life. I said, I'm going to do sports, and I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going somewhere to play some sports. I got into the wrestling team. It was Muhammad Ali. And see, so there it is. And that's where you will be or have been somebody's Muhammad Ali. And and I hate to to end this great, heavy conversation, but we're actually over time. So I I do have to end the show. Um, Next, uh, in two weeks on the 22nd, we have Homer Hickam. Hickam? Yeah. Yeah. He plays, I'm his mom. In uh, in Rocket Boys, the musical, I'm his mom. I've been his mom for a while. So so join us next week. And I, it sounds like we should have um, Tony back because it sounds like we have a lot more to, to talk about. We do. Um, and I see some people show. are commenting that they're ordering your book and they know who you are. They Their dads knew who you were or somebody's dad was a bodybuilder. And so, yeah, we need to have you back. Okay. Uh, yeah, I would, I would love that. Yes. yes. Even if you didn't, you're going to come on, come anyway. on anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I've been, I've been, I've been back. back. back.